0: Are U.S. companies pumping money into China's military advancement? A congressional committee is trying to find out. Chinese e-commerce giants Timu and Xi'an duking it out in U.S. courts. Timu accuses Xi'an of bullying its suppliers. But that's far from the only legal woes Xi'an is grappling with. Thousands taking to the streets in Washington, D.C., calling for an end to a brutal campaign of human rights abuses spanning decades. And how deadly is China's COVID-19 pandemic? A leaked count of funeral cremations offers a hint. The data quickly wiped after its release. Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Are U.S. venture capital firms funding China's AI and military development? That's what the House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party has decided to investigate. Committee leaders sent letters to four American firms demanding to know the extent of their dealings with the CCP. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg tells us more. The
1: House Select Committee on the CCP is launching investigations into several U.S. companies that it claims are funding the Chinese regime's development of artificial intelligence and military modernization. Committee Chair Mike Gallagher and Ranking Member Raja Krishnamurthy sent letters to the leaders of four American venture capital firms expressing serious concern about their investments in AI, microchip and quantum computing companies in China. The letters were sent to GGV Capital, GST Ventures, Qualcomm Ventures, and Walden International. The lawmakers request the leadership for each fund answer a series of questions about their investments in Chinese companies. That includes what companies they are investing in, the dollar amounts of each investment, their policies concerning investments in such companies, what course of action the funds would take if companies they invested in were sanctioned by the U.S., and the role the CCP plays in each company. Gallagher told NTD's Sam Wong, the most complex aspects of competition with China are economic and technological issues. Figuring out, you know, what is the line for selective decoupling, figuring out how we don't subsidize our own destruction. These are very,
2: very difficult things to do. And so the more we have an open debate like this, I think it refines our thinking and
1: increases the chance that we'll arrive at a durable legislative solution. Gallagher says the goal of the investigation is to create a record that can help Congress pass a strong bill to stop problematic investments in Chinese companies. Nazak Nikiktar, the former Undersecretary for Industry and Security at the U.S. Department of Commerce, says if the U.S. wants its allies to follow it in countering the Chinese regime, it needs to clearly define its terms and lead by example.
3: Our allies are watching us, and if our rules have loopholes, Right? Then they're going to know that they can move in the same way, kind of develop these rules that ultimately mean nothing. If we really are to get our allies on board, then we need to have ironclad rules and expect to do the same.
1: The letter sent to the four U.S. firms says some of the companies receiving U.S. money are linked to the persecution and ongoing genocide of Uyghurs in China. Gallagher says the probe into the four firms is the beginning of a broader investigation. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News.
0: Before we continue with today's news, a quick announcement. We're bringing you a very special story tomorrow. One that we hold dear and that few of our viewers know about. The founding of our media. How does it tie into one of the most brutal human rights abuses in China? And how did our founders survive Beijing's unrelenting threats here on U.S. soil? Websites attacked. Advertisers threatened. One chief technology officer blindfolded to a chair and beaten. All this and more coming up tomorrow. Chinese fashion giant Xi'an is facing more legal woes in the States. This time from fellow Chinese e-commerce giant Timu. The conflict is over suppliers. Timu is accusing Shein of stealing its manufacturers. Timu's lawsuit alleges Shein forced exclusivity deals with suppliers into only working with Shein, thus forcing Timu to look elsewhere. Timu claims Shein has taken over 8,000 suppliers in China. That amounts to around 70 to 80 percent of the merchants who would fill that market. The lawsuit goes on to accuse Xi'an of slapping fines on those who did work with Timu. As for why the lawsuits are taking place in the U.S., Timu claims Shein is hurting its growth in the country. Shein has dismissed the suit as, quote, without merit. Both companies have taken the U.S. market by storm. Shein entered the U.S. market in 2017, but Timu has been trying to catch up. And it seems Shein felt threatened. Last December, Shein took Timu to court, accusing it of hogging influencers. Timu is owned by PDD Holdings, along with Chinese e-commerce giant Pinduoduo. It's known for selling home goods from apparel to electronics, all at dirt-cheap prices. It's currently one of the top downloaded apps in the U.S., along with Xi'an, according to Sensor Tower. Xi'an is a fast fashion retailer from China. It's popular among millennials and Gen Zers in the U.S., now worth $66 billion. But Timu's suit is in the end of Sheehan's legal woes. In a California federal court, Sheehan is facing a lawsuit by three designers accusing the company of copyright infringement to the level of violating the RICO Act, an anti-racketeering law used to go after organized crime. A massive parade marching through America's capital. Thousands of spiritual practitioners taking to the streets, calling for an end to Beijing's persecution campaign against Falun Gong, one of the largest faith groups inside China. The death toll from the brutal clampdown still climbing. Our very own Melina Weiskopf brings us more from Capitol Hill.
4: We're here in the heart of the nation where thousands of fallen Dafa practitioners have gathered to raise awareness and call for the end to the 24 year long persecution against this spiritual practice. We spoke to some of them who are here today who actually lived through this persecution in China and she was arrested immediately
0: and sent to the uh, detention center. By that time I lost contact with my mom for two weeks.
4: Her mom's sudden disappearance is only part of the story. Li Jing began the practice as a young girl at age 13, making social life difficult due to the CCP's propaganda campaign to squash the practice.
0: So I felt um, isolated. Even though I know um, Falun Gong is righteous, I had to hide it from my new friends
4: and her story is one of millions. Even today, the pressure hasn't stopped for these spiritual believers. Some can't help but question why.
5: Electrical batons to beat me. I lost my uh, consciousness. Well, we just uh, practice meditation. We try to do uh, our our best to be a good person. I believe that's the best, uh, It's the universal values.
4: Raising awareness in the streets of Washington, D.C. They hold signs reading, in the CCP, humanity's only hope is to improve morality, and Falun Dafa is great.
1: It is up to us to stand up for those being persecuted in China and to make our voices heard.
0: We also know there is growing evidence that the CCP is even harvesting organs from religious and ethnic minorities around the world. The House passed a bill recently
4: to hold the CCP accountable for forced organ harvesting, of which Falun Gong practitioners are often the victims.
6: Organ harvesting bill, which has the most realistic chance of being passed and sent to the president's desk for signature.
4: Many speakers encouraged the spiritual practitioners to continue to stand up against this atrocity and thanked them for their courage in not letting the CCP wipe out the practice of Falun Dafa, which has since spread to over 100 countries around the world. Reporting from Washington, D.C., Melina Wisecup, NTD News.
0: Why do China watchers say Falun Gong is the largest civil disobedience movement inside modern-day China? Here's a quick look at our upcoming special report. That is tens of millions of Falun Gong people every day
1: are creating an underground media, leaflets, pamphlets about the persecution they face, about the terrible history of the CCP, and usually undercover at night, they're leaving it on doorsteps. And this is happening all over China, big cities, small villages, and everything in between. And so there's a tremendous groundswell in China to let the people know what the true history of the regime is, what's really happening to Falun Gong, and that's creating a lot of awareness.
0: The special report airs on YouTube tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern and on NTD broadcast TV this Saturday, July 22nd at 3.30 p.m. Eastern. A heated discussion on Capitol Hill, lawmakers grilling several Biden administration officials for their strategy on communist China. NTD's Sam Wong brings us the latest.
3: The House Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party held a hearing Thursday addressing the Biden administration's current approach in dealing with the CCP. Committee Chairman Mike Gallagher, a Republican, started off by praising several of the administration's policy measures in dealing with China. Secretary of State Blinken reiterated the determination that the CCP was committing genocide in Xinjiang. The administration levied historic export controls on advanced U.S. semiconductors and equipment going to the PRC. The administration then succeeded in aligning its policy with critical allies. The hearing comes on the heels of a visit to China by several top U.S. officials, aiming to put a stalled relationship back into motion. In a change of tone, Gallagher said that such a diplomatic approach has put Washington in a compromising position. And instead of holding the Chinese Communist Party accountable, the administration chased CCP diplomats around the world, seeking meetings in Beijing as if they, not the CCP, had something to apologize for. Representative Blaine Luchtemeyer said that China is running on a surplus in its trade with the U.S. And that extra pile of cash in China's pocket could be used to subsidize the regime's military capacity and its human rights abuses. Here's this exchange with Thea Rosman-Kentler, Assistant Secretary of Commerce for Export Administration.
1: We're, we're
5: funding by $382 billion of a deficit. their activities. Would you not agree with that?
4: We, we are aggressively attending with the, contending with the strategic trade th- threat posed no, by China. No, you're not.
5: No, you're not. I'm, I'm tired of your flowery language
3: this morning. Please answer the question. Washington recently stepped up restrictions on imports from China's Xinjiang region, using a law targeting forced labor in China. Two more companies have been added to the U.S. blacklist as a result. Despite all the heated moments, Chairman Gallagher said that both Republicans and Democrats are fighting for the same cause. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Sam Wong, NTD News.
0: A military development is setting off alarm bells in the West. Chinese and Russian naval forces are conducting joint drills in the Sea of Japan.
1: Operations conducted by the Russian Navy and the naval force of the Chinese People's Liberation Army are strengthening the international cooperation between the two countries.
0: According to Chinese state media, more than 10 warships plus 30 military aircraft have been deployed to the drill. Meanwhile, Russia's invasion of Ukraine has hit the 16th month's mark. The bloody conflict has been widely criticized by the West. Aiming to stop the Russian attack, democratic countries have been suppressing Moscow with measures hitting the country's economy, technology and military fields. But Beijing seems to have taken the opposite approach. Instead, China has maintained robust cooperation with Putin and has accused the West of unjust actions against Russia. A rare audience with Chinese leader Xi Jinping. That's what awaited former U.S. Secretary of State Henry Kissinger on Thursday. According to Chinese state broadcaster CCTV, the now 100-year-old former diplomat was hosted at the Diaoyutai State Guesthouse, a complex typically reserved for visiting foreign dignitaries. During the visit, she told Kissinger that China never forgets its old friends. And a statement released later, described the former official as a legendary diplomat. Kissinger has a long history with Beijing. He served as U.S. Secretary of State and National Security Advisor under Presidents Richard Nixon and Gerald Ford. During that time, he pushed for friendly policies toward China, aimed at appeasing the communist regime. That approach played a key diplomatic role in the 1970s, and Kissinger's efforts eventually paved the way for the establishment of formal U.S.-China relations in 1979. Back to his latest visit, details of the talks haven't been shared publicly, but she did note the significance of Kissinger's more than 100 visits to China, coupled with his recent milestone birthday, pointing out the 200s. A State Department spokesperson noted that it was aware of the trip, but that Kissinger was acting as a private citizen and not on Washington's behalf. China's pandemic death toll is back in the headlines. A leaked cremation count hints at just how deadly China's COVID-19 waves truly are, though the data was soon scrubbed after its release. Let's dive in.
2: This figure, posted on the official website of eastern Zhejiang province, highlights over 170,000 cremations in the first quarter of this year. That marks a jump of 70,000, or some 73% over the same period last year. Comments said the surge was due to the disposal of bodies that had accumulated during the outbreak late last year. Others argued that Zhejiang wasn't the hardest-hit area by COVID-19. That means the leaked figure is just the tip of the iceberg, suggesting the enormity of the nation's pandemic deaths. Based on calculations shared on social media, The latest figures project at least 4 million pandemic deaths across the country. That's almost 50 times higher than the official toll of 83,000 claimed by Beijing. With Zhejiang's mortality rate raising eyebrows on social media, authorities soon pulled it offline. The reaction didn't come as a surprise. Since the fourth quarter of 2022, China's local and state civil affairs bureaus have routinely left off cremation numbers from their quarterly reports. That's following Xi Jinping's chaotic overhaul of pandemic controls last December. At the time, private reports flooded in, detailing how bodies were piling up in crematoriums and hospitals. In other attempts to hide the real picture, Chinese health officials later narrowed the definition of what can be considered a COVID-19 death, and required local authorities to refrain from labeling death certificates with the term COVID-19.
0: Coming up, how is wealth transfer from the United States helping China's economic growth? And what should the U.S. do to tackle its massive trade deficit with China? American Thought Leader's host Yania Kelleck sat down with Robert Lighthizer, former U.S. trade representative under the Trump administration, for insight. That and more in just a minute, here on China In Focus. Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Is the ideal of free trade actually a myth? How should the U.S. tackle its massive trade deficit with China? Plus, should Washington strategically decouple from Beijing? And what would that actually look like? American Thought Leader's host Yania Kellick sat down with Robert Lighthizer, former U.S. trade representative under the Trump administration, for more.
6: Well, congratulations on no trade is free. Um, I just finished reading the book, and I think it's one of the more important books I've read, and I've read quite a few (laughs) over the last few years. I feel like there's a monumental change that happened in American foreign policy over the last few years. And you you document that to a significant extent in the book. And I just found it fascinating to be in the—I felt like I got transported into the midst of it. Uh, There's a moment where you as the U.S. trade representative, of course, get invited to, um, at the last moment, to sit in front of Xi Jinping and basically tell him your thoughts about what the U.S.-China trade relationship looks like. So just tell me about this moment, because I feel it's of profound historic significance.
5: Well, yeah, well, thank you. Um, as I say, it's a great pleasure to be here. Uh, I think that was a significant moment. So, basically, it's November of uh, 2017. I was on the president's trip. Um, there was a a small pre-meeting that uh, General Kelly was going to go to, but then decided to have me go in his place, and I went to that. And then we had uh, the big meeting, which was in the, the Hall of the People, which I described there. And it's basically 12 people on one side and 12 on the other. The way these things are always done, right? They're always done this way. And you have the the heads of, of state in the middle, and then you have people kind of go by rank on either side. And they're usually heavily scripted. And one side reads, usually it's the host, and then the other side, and they go back and forth. And at one point, after a couple of people had spoken, certainly the presidents both spoke, and, and their foreign secretary spoke, uh, and then the President Trump said, well, you know, Ambassador Lighthizer, tell him our, our position on trade. And, of course, I have been doing this for 40 years, so I had thought about it a lot. And I, I went through and, and spoke respectfully, but, but directly for several minutes, and just sort of said, here's, the, here's how Americans see this, right, this unbalanced relationship. This is what we think it's costing us and how bad it is for us. Um, and, uh, of course, the, the reaction of, to candor in a in context like that was one of, like, whoa, hold on, time out, who invited this guy? But um, the meeting went on afterwards. Afterwards, the president asked me, he said, can I see your remarks? And I told him, uh, you know, I, just, I didn't have any remarks. I was, you know, I've been thinking about this for a long time, and and so I I just said what I usually say in the order that I usually say, yeah, but and once again, respectfully, right? My, my, uh, I viewed my role as uh, always to be respectful to the other to the other country, and you know these were obviously very important people. But the relationship had become, has become terribly unbalanced to the point that it's just a transfer of wealth from the United States. Um, to to China in that case and and by the way to some other countries too but nothing on the scale that is with China so it was a kind of a dramatic moment I, I never got feedback what their reaction was but I can imagine that it was um, one where they kind of gathered up and said well there's it's not going to be business as usual going forward
6: um, and and it wasn't and I and I think that's also something that's you know fascinating to read about in the book. Uh, if there's a theme that I that I found, one of them is that a lot of different folks, not just communist China, had gotten used to you know dialogues, business as usual, discussions. Not a lot of teeth in enacting any of the actual decisions that had been made, or checking to see if they're actually being enacted. And you kind of brought about a different way of working, which repeatedly people seem to be surprised at.
5: Is that how you would view it? Yeah I mean that certainly is one of the themes. It certainly was a theme in our negotiations uh, with the Chinese, but it was a theme as you say, our negotiations with a lot of people. I mean these these things tend to, to fall into patterns and, and you see it I'm a trade guy and economic guy, so I don't get involved in the other areas. But uh, but by all accounts, it's similar there, too. You fall into a pattern. You say certain things. People make vague, uh, vague sort of commitments. They uh, have ambiguity running through them, and then they get up and don't do anything and come back to the next meeting six months later or three months later, whenever the devil it is, and start the whole process over again. And then at the end of uh, four years or less than that, in many cases, the, there's a turnover of personnel in the United States, and the person they're dealing with realizes now that they have someone who doesn't have a clue, uh, and then they start the whole process, not even where it left off, but back at, 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 at you know, you know, the first base. So, um, and, and that was never my view. My view and I, in the first place, uh, uh, you know, President Trump wouldn't have tolerated it. He would have been like, what, what are you crazy? We're not gonna do this. Have these sort of meaningless dialogues over and over again accomplishing literally nothing. The full episode is available on Epoch.tv.
0: That's all for today's China In Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. If you have any feedback on the show or have something you'd like to see us cover, send us an email at ChinaInFocus at We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for watching. See you tomorrow.